Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Trinity. Welcome to church. Um, it's really good to, to be with you this morning. My name is Matthew. I'm the parish pastor here on the east side, and it's wonderful to be able to worship together. It's wonderful to have Sarah read the scriptures to us. You may not know Sarah. You may recognize her, but not know her name. Sarah Lewis is our ministry intern uh, this year. She began um, actually months ago, um, but because of the strangeness, you probably haven't seen her do very much except behind the scenes, but we're so blessed to have Sarah on our team. Uh, Also, something uh, to celebrate today, the reason that Jenny's not uh, here with us today is because she is in South Carolina where she was ordained into the priesthood uh, um, this weekend. And so if you're on social media, you probably saw that. But um, if not, you should join our social media and then you can see those amazing pictures. We're so blessed to have Jenny uh, ordained as a priest in our church and we were, were excited to have her come back soon. Okay, so I'm going to read Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14, and then we're going to pray and and jump into today's text. So if you would, uh, follow along with me. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Well, tell those who have been invited, look. I prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, maltreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops to destroy those murders and burn their city. And then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. And their slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we, um, as has been true, Lord, with so many of the texts we've looked at recently, we come to this word um, with a little bit of fear and trembling. God, there are many heavy and hard things going on in the world in our lives. And yet we come to this, we trust that the Bible has a word of life. We remember John, John's words, um, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so we come to this word today from Jesus, knowing that in it is grace upon grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, we are in the the depths of some pretty hard material in in the Bible. There's nearly nothing easy about these parables we've been looking at for the last few weeks, which I think, if we're honest, um, is probably a little disappointing because um, there's enough hard news in the world right now. There's enough hard things that we're we're working through. Our country and our world continue to struggle. Um, This last week was, like every week, a virtual roller coaster. And I'm sure that you're probably like me in that you're um, tired 
like just exhausted with the pace of how things are moving and how uh, violently things are, are constantly changing. Um, this is one of the primary reasons we're in the study we're in. This is why we're doing this series, which we've called Citizens, which is really just a, a lens through which we are looking at the lectionary teachings from Matthew's gospel, because we understand that Jesus was speaking into a chaotic time and he was offering a different vision of reality. He was offering a different kingdom that we could swear allegiance to. And we have to like preach this word to ourselves again and again, because this is reminding us of something that is ultimate, that our hope is not in the systems of this world. Our hope is not in November 3rd in the outcome of an election. Our hope is not in the balance of the Supreme Court. Those things are important, but they're not ultimate. And that distinction is very important. Something can be very important, but not be ultimate because otherwise, if everything is ultimate, then you and I are always one bad event away from despair. Today's text comes to us with a sharp edge, but I believe a good word um, um, behind it. And so we're going to look first at that sharp edge, and then we're going to get to that good word of comfort, because I actually believe that the Holy Spirit wants to give us a a deep word of comfort today from this um, parable. The first thing, though, we need to see is that this parable is about judgment. There is just no doubt about what this parable is about. It is actually the third in a series of parables that Jesus tells back to back to back. And he does so uh, on the heels of a question. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, that whole thing. Um, and then he clears the temple. He, he throws the money changers out. He flips over the tables. He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of robbers. And then he goes out about a couple miles away. He spends the night in his friend's house, Lazarus's house in Bethany. He comes back the next morning and the religious leaders whose entire livelihood and life was bound up in the work of the temple. They meet him in a huff and they say, who gives you the authority to do these things? And Jesus tells three parables, the second of which Jenny taught on last week. And each one of these has at its kernel the same basic idea. Jesus looks at the religious leaders and he says, God is taking the kingdom away from you. You who think you deserve it. You who feel entitled to it. You who feel better than everyone else. God is going to take the thing away from you that you feel like is your inheritance. And he's going to give it to someone else because the kingdom is not meant to be hoarded. It's not meant to be held behind walls of self-righteousness. It is for all people. Now, Jesus' words Um, In this text, they're harsh. Some of the imagery is harsh. There's murder. there's, there's, There's binding of people and throwing them out. We need to understand that when Jesus is using this harsh language, he is picking up a tradition that far predates him. I mean, hundreds of years beforehand, the prophets of Israel used the same kind of language to condemn the so-called spiritual leaders, the shepherds of Israel. Um, I've been reading through the prophets for months now because of my my Bible reading plan that I'm in. And it's incredible how much this motif shows up again and again and again, where God's people, God's prophets speak a word to those spiritual leaders, those meticulous, scrupulous, moral people and says, you've missed the plot. You think that this is about you enlarging your, your state and your power. No, you've actually been given power for the sake of others. You're meant to actually take care of the marginalized and the poor. You're supposed to be looking out for widows and orphans. And instead you have swallowed up widows and orphans estates only to make your own estate greater. You have used your power to exploit and to lay heavy burdens on the very ones whom you were supposed to be relieving of the burdens. 
So Jesus just picks up this language that is old and, 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 and Jewish and he now turns it on the modern day for him, spiritual leaders. And all of this is culminating to what is going to be uh, the seven woes of Matthew 23, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. Um, and I'm sure you're excited about that as I am. It's all culminating to this big rebuke on Jesus's part towards those who had misused their power. But here's what I just want to say. Um, about this section of, of, this, of the parable. Jesus clearly came into the world to pronounce judgment on those who had used their power and their privilege and their knowledge and their morality to better themselves and to disadvantage others. And that is a word of judgment. We can't just like pin that on Pharisees 2,000 years ago. That is a word of judgment that continues to reverberate down the corridors of time to our hearts today. I think there are questions that we need to be asking ourselves and not may assume that we're not the Pharisees in this text. Questions like, in what ways do I believe myself to be better than others? In what ways do I view my sin as less severe than others? In what ways have I taken a portion of God's law and made it um, the whole ball game, meanwhile, neglecting or ignoring portions of God's law because they were inconvenient or because they felt archaic or because they feel like they're for other people. In what ways do I use my power or platform or privilege for my own self-aggrandizement rather than for the sake of those without power or platform or privilege? So I just say this at the beginning before we get to the, the comforting word in this, and there is a deeply comforting word in this. I say this because I do believe if Jesus were to walk through the doors right now into this space, he would have comfort for us. He would have healing for us. He would have joy and peace to give us, but he would also have a word for us because he loves us too much to leave us where we are. And if there's something that we see in the heart of Jesus is that it is his love that motivates him to be willing to speak a hard thing into the face of disobedience, of unwillingness to listen. So, this parable is about judgment, but underneath it all, like in the groundwater of this parable, the beautiful word of this parable is this, the kingdom is a feast. And we've been talking about the kingdom of God for months now. And, and if we're not careful, what we'll end up making it into is something that looks like the kingdoms of this world. And we need to remember that Jesus's sociopolitical vision, which is the kingdom of God, is something that um, is embodied in his whole life. But when Jesus is looking for a metaphor to describe what his kingdom is like, he doesn't look at the kingdoms of, his, of the world. He doesn't look at Rome. He doesn't look at, at, at Judah. He, he looks instead at an entirely different thing. And he says, what, what this kingdom is like is like a feast. Now, Jesus is not being original here. Again, he is literally just picking up the language that had been first spoken 700 years before by the prophet Isaiah. Jesus is standing on the shoulders of the prophetic tradition uh, in which he was now a modern day uh, exemplar. Also, Jesus uses the language of marriage. He says it is like a marriage feast. Again, not original. The, the most common and powerful and provocative relationship in um, the, the Old Testament is that between God and Israel, as, as described by a, uh, which is described as a relationship between a husband and a wife. And so Jesus is simply saying what the kingdom of God is like is it's like a feast. Before you think of it as like a military power, before you think of it as like some sort of a... Uh, economic reality. Think of it as a feast. Now, what does that mean? Like, let's just camp there for a second. What does it mean if the kingdom is a feast? And here's four things that came to me, and there's probably 
400 more. But first, it's communal. That the, that the kingdom is a, is a communal reality, that it's something that we do with other people. And that is a, was for me actually a particularly uh, exciting idea in a, in a time and a season where so many in our church are eating alone every day, where so many in our church are starved for affection, where people feel so isolated and cut off that the kingdom of God is an ultimate feast. It's a communal event in which we all do it with one another. The second thing, it's, it's extravagant. There's no scarcity in God's. He's not going to say like, well, wait a second, nobody gets seconds. There's always going to be plenty. The feast is, is overflowing. Again, as Micah just read to us, my cup runs over. It, there's more than enough. You're, it's, it's almost, it's superfluous. It doesn't, you don't have to, there doesn't have to be as much as there is, except that God wants you and me to know that his heart is wildly and radically generous. Third, the kingdom is to be enjoyed. The kingdom is not drudgery. It's not meant to be this, um, this pressure. Uh, it, it's not boring. It is something to be enjoyed, that God is actually meant to be enjoyed. That the reason we worship is not because we're trying to like make someone happy with us. It's because God actually created us for joy and he knows that we are never more uh, alive than when we are enjoying him. And then finally, we see in this text that the feast is open to everyone, that there's no limitation on who can come. The religious Jews were invited. The irreligious Jews are invited. The Romans and the barbarians, the Scythians, those from East and the West, both as, as Jesus says, both good and bad. There's literally nobody who is cut out from going to this. This is an invitation that rushes towards us. Every single person is invited to this feast. Everyone is wanted. Everyone is sought out. No one is excluded from the call. No one is um, beyond hope. Now, this is, as I said a moment ago, this has been an exhausting year for, um, for us. I, uh, I haven't spoken to a person who hasn't just felt worn out by it. And yet, every person I talk to, many of you right outside these doors during communion, you're still positive. You're still thanking God for the, the, the small gifts and blessings in the midst of it. You're still able to see that, it's, that there have been, you know, sort of silver linings. And yet, every person I talk to, we're just, we are exhausted. It has been more than half a year since anything remotely close to normal life has happened. And it's going to be a long time still until this building is full again. We're hoping to begin to have small gatherings, but like how long is it going to be before there's hundreds of people in that room without masks singing and hugging during the piece? Like it's probably going to be like, it will have been more than a year since we had to close up. Like we're talking about, we are living through a very, very difficult, exhausting, wearying time. And the particulars of this season are unique to you and me and to our, and to our generation but they are in the grand scheme of human history. They are not particularly difficult. And I don't say that to minimize what you and I are going through. I say that to humanize what you and I are going through. We are going through something that is actually very normal. That throughout all the centuries of time, angst and, and difficulty and suffering and loss has always been a hair's breadth away from the human experience. This is why Christians and Jews have always understood the world that we live in to be a world that is fallen, that is a world that is broken, a world that is not as it's meant to be. And you and I know that that's true. This is why we're so outraged by injustice. It's why we're so outraged by human suffering and loss that feels senseless and, and violent. You and I are, are bothered by this in our core. There's no reason why we should be if this is the way it's supposed to be. And there's something about it that we just know it's not, that we're made for a different kind of world. The halls of history are covered with untold suffering, senseless bloodshed, and brutal dictators, parents burying children. 
traumatic upbringings. And then on top of that, there's the more dull sort of in the background, but still very real, but constant chronic pain of uh, depression and, and loneliness and racialized injustice and uh, um, a, a sense of dis-ease in our own skin and unrealized dreams and, and, and just chronic disappointment and mental health issues and, and all of this throughout centuries and eons of time mounting up to a chorus of lament and anger and disappointment. This is the human experience. Yes, there's really great things that happen in the midst of it, but this is the human experience. And God's word to you, to me, in that is I see you and what I have prepared for you is a feast. What I have prepared for you is a day of jubilee. I have prepared for you a good word. And so I've been, for the last couple of weeks, as I've been preparing for the sermon, I've been memorizing the passage that I think Jesus is referencing that he's sort of standing on the shoulders of in this, in this parable. And it's from Isaiah 25. It's such a good word. I've been trying to work it into my heart because I, like so many of you, I'm so tired. And, and I just need, I need God to fight for me with his word. So Isaiah 25 begins like this, and, and I don't have this part on the screen, but we have verse six and on on the screen. It says, um, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will, I will praise your name. Why? Because you have done wondrous things, plans formed of old. You have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It shall not be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a refuge to the poor. You have been a refuge to the needy in their distress. You have been a shelter from the rainstorm. You have been shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. It is like heat in a dry place. But you, Lord, will subdue the noise of the foreigner. As heat by the shade of the sun, you will put away the song of the ruthless. And then this is what he does. And on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will prepare a feast for all peoples. A feast of rich food and of well-matured wine. Of rich food with marrow, of well-matured wine, strained clear. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the veil, the sheet that is cast over all people, the shroud that has covered all nations. He will swallow up death forever and he will wipe away the tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken and it will be said on that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. We have waited for him and he has saved us. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And to me, this has been a word I needed to hear. That so much angst right now is circulating around re-entry and school starting up and the political season that we're in and just the general disease and the loneliness and the months and months of cumulative weariness so many of us are feeling in the, the way that it's tearing apart the fabric of our relationships and struggles we're having with our family members who all have different ways of dealing with the disease and someone masks and someone be kissing on the mouth every time you see. And it's so hard to do this. And God sees us. His word to us is, I see you. And I will wipe the tears from your face. I will swallow up death and I will prepare a feast for all people of the best food and the best wine you've ever had.
that that's what's in your future. And that is a good word for us. As we just sang, we will feast in the house of Zion. He has done great things we will say together. Now, I just want to say in closing really quickly, what I'm calling an epilogue. There's this little part at the end of it, and I think it's important to be honest to the text and ask it. What about that weird part with the wedding garment? What do we do with that? A lot of work has gone into try to understand what Jesus is referencing here, and people have tried to, you know, analogize it. Well, the, the wedding garment is the Holy Spirit or whatever it is. I think the best way to understand it is the best way to understand most of Jesus' teaching, which is in its first century Middle Eastern context. And what's probably going on here is this person is underdressed. They're, in other words, they're not prepared. They've just sort of wandered in off the street. They're hoping for a free meal. Sort of thing that probably some of us have done. They're just crashing the wedding. They're looking for some food. And they get caught. And why is this important? Why am I, why am I doing this? Um, Because Jesus wants you and me to know that the invitation is available to us, but we do have to choose it. It's not going to be something that we just sort of fall into. In fact, if we're not careful, we're actually going to find all the reasons not to accept it. And when we do, we miss out on the feast. We find ourselves in a place of weeping and gnashing. And this is a hard word, especially for those of us with with the liberal sensibilities of our day. But Jesus is simply saying that our response matters, that your life matters, that the things that you and I choose to do with our life matter. It gives dignity and value to our decisions. You've heard me quote East of Eden probably more times than you want. Um, It could be worse though. I could quote Tolkien all the time. Um, But in East of Eden, uh, Steinbeck writes um, about the power of this idea of choosing. He uses this Hebrew word, timshel, which means thou mayest, thou mayest. And he says that gives a choice. It might be the most important word in the world. It says that the way is open. It throws it right back on man. Because if thou mayest, then it is also true that thou mayest not. And so Jesus is saying, this is what my kingdom is like. You are called to it. You're invited to it. It is a a feast of well-aged food, well-aged wine. It is for all peoples. It is the end of death and suffering and pain. You have to choose it. You have to, you have to receive it. It is a word of hope for us, but it is a word that we have to choose to believe. And I think for you and me, what this means right now is actually just doing the work to continue to fight for hope. To continue to do what we've been talking about for months now of of correcting and realigning and recentering our vision on the one who sets the table for us. This is how we remain as citizens of the kingdom. So that there will be a day when we will say, as we just sang a moment ago, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. We have waited for him and he has. We will now rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Let's pray together and confess our sins as we prepare to come to the table. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. Amen.
May the almighty God have mercy on you through Jesus Christ. May he strengthen you in goodness and by the power of the Holy Spirit, may he keep you in eternal life. Amen. And so Jesus offers to you and me something that we desperately need in a moment like this. He doesn't offer us the weight of the law, but instead he relieves and releases the weight and instead places on us peace. And so I say to you, may the peace of Christ be with you. Um, turn to one another. If you're available, to, if you're with people, do it. Grab a phone, text someone if you're alone. And just pass this piece of Jesus on to one another and we'll continue with our communion in a moment. This meal, which... Uh, feels meager probably to anyone who comes to take it. It's a tiny wafer. It's a little bit of wine. Is, um, is actually meant to be a reminder of this banquet that Jesus talked about. This is, it's a, it's a foretaste. It's like an appetizer. And so as you come to communion today, and I hope you will come, I'd love to see you in a, in a few moments. Um, Jesus is inviting us to have a foretaste of that feast when he will swallow up death forever and wipe away all the tears from all of our eyes. Now, the reason that is possible is because of what this meal is. It's not simply bread and wine, but it is the body and the blood of our crucified Lord who swallowed up death by actually succumbing to death. It was actually his willingness to surrender himself to death that made it possible for him to swallow it up for the rest of us. And so when we come and we take this, we are not simply memorializing that, and we're not simply remembering a future meal, but we are receiving the promise of Jesus himself, communion with Christ himself, who says to you and me, take, eat, all of you. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins so that you may have peace with me, so that you would have life. So when we take this meal, we take the bread, we dip it in the cup, we declare the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to this table and we pray that you would make this to be for us true spiritual food. You would cause this bread and wine to be for us the body and blood of Christ so that as we eat it in faith, our own hearts and bodies would be sanctified and made holy, that we would become different people, that Lord, we would have a foretaste of that moment when you will wipe the tears from our eyes. God, stir hope in our hearts. Those of us who feel flat, we pray that you would, um, you would fill us. You would enliven us. You would inspire us with your spirit. We pray, Father, that all these things would be worked out in our hearts in this moment in time so that we could be a faithful witness, a faithful presence in our city of a hope that is larger than the things of this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Before we come, uh, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together in closing. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace. We'll see you in a moment. Come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God.